0: Synthetic fertilizer was critical to boosting food production and feeding people around the world. However, it comes at a cost. Student journalists from the Universities of Florida and Missouri spent 16 weeks reporting on the fertilizer industry and its benefits and harms. This investigative series tackles topics from the discovery of nitrogen and phosphorus, to their manufacturing super-sized chemical plants along the Mississippi River, to evaluating future solutions for food production and dealing with chemical waste. I'm Elliot Trito, your host. Working with me is fellow recent UF Journalism graduate Julia Cooper. Together we'll be speaking with some of our fellow journalists for a look into our reporting on chemical production that feeds the world and also harms it. This is the Price of Plenty podcast, a How We Did It production. As Julia and I's articles kick off the Price of Plenty series, we had a conversation about how our articles focuses on two elements that are fundamental for life, phosphorus and nitrogen. This is part one of the Price of Plenty series, Elemental. So Julia, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us for the pilot episode of this this awesome behind-the-scenes podcast here today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Absolutely. I am so excited about helping produce this behind-the-scenes look at our deep dive into the fertilizer industry. So thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: of course. And thanks again for doing that. I, I really appreciate it. So let's let's get right into it. So our stories for the Price of Plenty series is we're kind of the first part, which is elemental. So you're writing about phosphorus. I'm writing about nitrogen, which are the fundamental elements for life, but also the key ingredients in fertilizer. So Tell me what's going on with the story and why is this Florida's Hidden Backbone?
1: Absolutely. So yeah, like you said, my story is called Florida's Hidden Backbone. Um, and it's a look at the element of phosphorus, which was first discovered by an amateur German alchemist in the late 1660s. But what's so significant and interesting to me about phosphorus is that even though it's a really significant part of plant growth, it can't be synthetically produced like other nutrients, such as nitrogen and potassium. So what I did was I decided to take a look into the phosphate mining industry, which produces the product that goes into phosphoric fertilizers. Um, And coincidentally, the state of Florida supports a huge part of phosphate mining and about 25% of global demand for, you know, phosphate product is actually supplied by Florida-based mining operations. And so because of that, I decided to take a deeper look at the history of phosphate mining in the Sunshine State. So what I do is I take readers from the very beginning of this history, and that starts with the prehistoric Miocene era. Um, And that is the period in which these rich phosphate deposits that are found in huge swaths under central Florida soils um, were actually formed. Um, So I take readers from that all the way up to Modern day mining operations and what the industry is dealing with today, Um, and what I found was that this was a really complicated and nuanced story, I kind of in the story used this metaphor of a double sided coin. And so what I mean by that is phosphate mining, while it does help support agriculture and food production across the world, the history of the industry also includes a lot of different sacrifices and so. I talk about labor issues at the turn of the century and how that turned into this violent strike that went on for months and also made a significant dent in the fertilizer, the global fertilizer trade at the time. Um, I also talk about, you know, the environmental consequences of the industry, which include heavy water use that caused an entire spring system to dry up. So even though I think this is a deep and complicated history, it's something that even I as a native Floridian had no idea existed before getting into this project. And so I titled it Florida's Hidden Backbone, um, because even though it is a huge part of the state's economy, it's something that not a lot of people know about or really understand. And so that's kind of a quick overview of of what I worked on.
0: Yeah, I just thought that that was a very poignant point about how like, when you're Floridian, you don't know much about this. But you kind of know more about its history, you realize that it is part of our history. So no, I thought that was a really good point that you made.
1: I can I can add on to that. During the process of my reporting, I came across a study that said actually the majority of Floridians don't know about phosphate mining. And you know, we we associate the state with the environment and and ecotourism. There's this there's this huge industry that um is very deeply tied to Florida's environment and groundwater, our spring systems and, and surface waters, really not a lot of people have been taught about or or really know that it's happening.
0: So with that being said, what do you want viewers from Florida or even beyond Florida to take away from your story?
1: I think something that I want, you know, not just for Floridians, but anyone across the globe to to really grasp is that Um, what is happening kind of behind the scenes of what you know of Florida is there is this huge industry supporting about a quarter of the globe's demand for phosphate. And a large part of phosphate production goes directly into creating phosphoric acid fertilizers. I want people to understand that this is also connected to this larger picture about how much fertilizers and nutrient pollution and water use is connected to various different ecosystems across the globe. I mentioned in my story that from the Great Lakes down to the Mississippi River and into the dead zone of the Gulf of Mexico, nutrient pollution is involved. Nutrient pollution is also involved in toxic algae that um, appears on the coast of Florida. And really, a look at the fertilizer industry is a look at how interconnected our systems of industry are with human health, human justice stories, as well as environmental impact stories.
0: We traveled to Bartow, Florida, we traveled to New Orleans and beyond. With that, what I wanted to ask was, what were some lessons you learned? Or what, what what did you really get? What did you take away from that?
1: Yeah, I think I can speak more to our trip to Central Florida rather than Louisiana because um our trip to the area around Bartow really pertained a lot more to my story. Um and that's because when you're in that area it's also just kind of easy to go from town to town. And so one of the uh, towns that we were able to visit was Mulberry. That's actually the site of the strike that I mentioned earlier. Um, And that was that happened in 1919. And a large part of my story kind of chronicles what happened there. Basically, that strike is one of the only examples that I know of, of successful multiracial unionism during the first Red Scare, Um, and this was a period in history that was marked by widespread labor suppression and racial violence, and so getting to visit the town of Mulberry and see where this happened from was really impactful. Um, It's also where, um, I mentioned this in my story, Zora Neale Hurston, a preeminent 20th century writer, um, documented folk stories, folk songs uh, from laborers in the 1930s like good day. and while people who are familiar with Hurston and her work and and even more nichely her work for um, the U.S. Works Progress Administration they know about her interviews with turpentine camp workers but um, she also came to Mulberry and interviewed phosphate miners. She even has a quote in one of her autobiographies about it. And so that was another cool point in the history that I got to include that these these very prominent figures that we know about also have a connection to this niche underground industry that a lot of people don't know about.
0: My last question is, is, that, is there anything in the article or anything else that I, or just basically, is there anything that I didn't bring up that you think is important to note in your article?
1: Not the article specifically, but uh, something that I didn't get into was um, while we also took this reporting trip to Central Florida, we were in the heart of what's called Bone Valley. Bone Valley is this area of Central Florida where um, a large part of these phosphate deposits are found. And one thing that we did was we canoed down um, the Peace River. Out of an outpost in Arcadia, Florida, um, and what was significant about that was, as we were canoeing, we were also on a fossil hunt tour, um, and so we got to um, unearth some of the fossils that are found in these pebble deposits along the river. I'm kind of shocked. Look
0: at this super round pebble. Yeah. Oh, there's another.
1: Mm -hmm. And what was so cool to me about that was um, we were getting to hold in our hands the fossilized remains of the prehistoric creatures that lived, you know, 15 million years ago that helped form these phosphate deposits. And so that was a good connecting point in my history and understanding how deep this history goes into, you know, prehistoric eras. So I guess I'll turn it to you, Elliot. Uh, tell me about your story and this, this focus on nitrogen.
0: So with my story, nitrogen is a very essential element, not only to Earth, but to the universe. It's a, also a very crucial ingredient in fertilizer. So my focus on was kind of more about how the production, the overproduction, I should say, of ammonia, is affecting you know organic matter around it. Um, but what I wanted to do was kind of give some context of ammonia and nitrogen and why it's important. So, um, like I said, um, nitrogen is one of the most common chemical elements, and you know it makes up seventy eight percent of the air. Um, but they also can't use it in gas form; it needs to be fixed. The fix happens slowly in nature as plants and microorganisms convert atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia. Now the best way to get ammonia in a very super fast way is something called the Haber-Bosch process. And what that does is that it combines nitrogen from the air with hydrogen under extremely high pressure to create ammonia. Now, this was something that was created you know, back in the early 20th century from a uh, German chemist, uh, Fritz uh, Haber. He actually won a Nobel prize in chemistry for this as well. So It was quoted in my article as like, you know, exceedingly important means of improving the standards of agriculture and the well-being of mankind. So originally, this was made to really speed up the process of like, you know, synthetic nitrogen fertilizers to increase agriculture and stuff like that. However, though, he's also deemed as being called the father of chemical warfare. And of course, that's been used for weapons and for like uh, mustard gas or even later on, unfortunately, using it during the gas chambers uh, during the Holocaust. So that was basically the bulk of my story was kind of um, focusing on Fritz Haber and about how this um, Haber-Bosch process was very important to quickly producing a lot of ammonia, but also how it really held history in general, like not just American history, but also just worldwide history.
1: So we talked about, Our first trip of the semester being to Central Florida, but we also took another trip over to New Orleans, Louisiana, and that really has a lot to do with your story. So tell me about the process of going to New Orleans and Louisiana and how it relates to your story about nitrogen.
0: Yeah, so in southeastern Louisiana, near the Mississippi River, um, CF Industries has a complex in Donaldsville that... Is considered to be the largest ammonia plant in the world, according to the company, and that's huge. And so we went there, and it was—I wrote this in the article, but it was like a, it was like a, a a steampunk city. It was just like basically it was working 24 hours. It was like a bright lights were there at night. I quoted here like a busy hive of chemical manufacturing. So like nearly a thousand workers were at the plant producing nearly eight million tons of nitrogen products a year for agriculture and other industries as well. So going there was really important because I wanted to see where literally like how the sausage was being made. So they're looking to get more, they're looking to make more plants. And so I wrote the section in the article um, uh, where basically the company has announced that it's pursuing two new kinds of ammonia production projects that will allow CF to reduce carbon emissions 25% by 2030 and to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. What does that mean? That means that they're trying to produce a new way of renewable energy with using ammonia called green ammonia. Now, CF is looking to produce 20,000 tons of green ammonia a year, just 0.25% of their annual production. Now also something to compare it with is that blue ammonia, which means ammonia is conventionally produced, but the carbon dioxide emitted in, in the process is captured and stored away. And so with that being said, last fall, CF announced plans to invest nearly 2 billion dollars on a carbon capture project at Donaldsonville that will allow the plant to produce, you know, 1.7 million tons of blue ammonia per year. And something interesting I found in my article was that the the Louisiana governor John Bell Edwards loved this idea. He thought it would be great to basically he saw it as a win of like more jobs but also like the leader in transition to clean energy. You know, this is something that's really important. So well, there's pe- there are critics out there who say that carbon capture and storage is risky. It's it's unproven technology and it's kind of like left with a question mark. Like you're saying that this is important to do, this is great, whatever, but it's kind of kind of a question mark in general. So this is kind of what I had towards my story as well about. In my article, I had lawyer Monique Harden, who's with the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice in New Orleans. She said that uh, carbon capture projects are unproven and risky to communities that already have to deal with living near chemical plants. Another thing I found interesting was that I talked with uh, Benjamin Johnson, who wrote a book called Making Ammonia. Um, this was last year. And he did a wonderful job of explaining to me about how comparing how ammonia is made back then till today. And he said back in Haber's day, they didn't care about carbon dioxide, but we do now. So he said it's exciting to see new technology to make ammonia green. Now, what I got from this is that kind of interesting is that green green ammonia is supposed to be something that's like renewable energy. That's really good. But then I got the governor to say that blue ammonia is the way to go is renewable. So it's kind of this conflicting thing of like, what is renewable? What is not renewable? So it's it's definitely hard to kind of mitigate that down towards. So, yeah. And that's why um, Louisiana was important to go to to really see this.
1: Absolutely. Um, And, you know, I said it was a little bit more significant for your story, but um, I think for the purposes of all of our stories under this project, we also got to take a trip out to the research site that does a lot of work dealing with what's called the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, This is an area of low oxygen in the water that is caused by nutrient pollution. So phosphoric and nitrogen-based fertilizers running off into the Mississippi, down into the Gulf, and creating this area where um, life isn't able to be sustained in uh, marine waters anymore, partly due to fertilizers. And that was something that was significant to both of our stories. I do want to ask you, though, outside of work from this class, what are you going to be taking away from the process of, of our reporting?
0: From both trips, I learned a lot. I learned the value of local journalism, about how that's so important to everywhere you go, no matter where you are in the world. I think it's so important that a big problem we're seeing that is unless you're in a metro, metropolitan area, it's really hard to figure out where you're, what's going on around, around your neck of the woods. So to really see that we're going to like rural Florida or rural Louisiana, we're really seeing the value of why journalism is important in telling their stories, but also just community outreach. For me, like when I write a story, sometimes like, you know, you don't really process sometimes when you're writing stuff. And to me, like once you're there in person, you talk to these people, that's when you really realize, okay, this is a bigger story. So that's the biggest takeaway I got. But also I learned as well To firstly, like I'm kind of now more interested about fertilizers and about how I couldn't even tell, I couldn't even define what fertilizer was at the beginning of the semester. Now I'm more interested about like how our food is being made and the ways that farmers are, are getting our food. So, and I hope that we do this to our fellow listeners and viewers.
1: So we're working on a kind of behind the scenes look podcast production at what our reporting process was like on this project. So something I want to ask you is for someone really looking to know what goes into our reporting process, what would you want to tell them? What would you want people to know about how we produced this project?
0: So when I came up with the idea for the podcast, like a behind the scenes production, I really wanted to take the time for reporters to kind of go out of the way to really tell me from their side of the story what they saw and how they saw this, because we're we're human beings at the end of the day, we're we're storytellers. I really wanted to share with people how sometimes there's like a mental and physical toll on this, and how we've got these stories. And you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of of movies and music, and I love documentaries and I love the special features. I like a DVD or or stuff like that. So. I really wanted to do that, but also I wanted to give the opportunity a chance to, for our fellow reporters and colleagues to maybe provide details that would not have made a final cut that they also thought that was interesting to have, you know, just other context as well. So yeah, so that was, that was basically it. So yeah, I just love, I love me some special features. So I just got to say thanks for joining today. And I really work, uh, I'm looking forward to um, working on this podcast with you to really really talk to our fellow colleagues and and reporters about what they found and what are some interesting things that most people not even know. So thank you.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about the rest of this podcast production as a look into our project, The Price of Plenty. And also, if you enjoyed this episode, please stay tuned for next week's episode. And that topic is going to be some of our justice
0: stories. Can't wait. Thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next time, where we talk with the University of Florida's Alan Hilleli and Lucille Lanigan about what it's like to live near Florida's $5 billion phosphate industry. The Price of Plenty was funded by a grant funded from the Pulitzer Center's Nationwide Connected Coastlines Reporting Initiative. The Price of Plenty is led by Associate Professor Sarah Hiles at the University of Missouri and environmental journalist Cynthia Barnett at the University of Florida, with assistance from the Arizona Republic's Joan Miners. This episode was produced and edited by Julia Cooper and Elia Trito. I'm Elia Trito and this is the Price of Plenty podcast.